Well, good morning, Redemption Church. How are you guys doing this morning? Good? All right, and good morning to everybody online as well watching. It's great to have you with us as well. Now, before we get underway today, I actually have kind of a cool little treat. Uh, some people, some of you may know and some of you may not, but right now I want to bring out some old friends of Redemption Church, Mark and Josie. Why don't you guys come on out right now? Some of you may remember... Josie has been with us forever. She was here before I was here, so she is old school. Uh, Mark is new to us, but I thought we would have you guys come out for just a minute here and just share a little bit, like, what you up to, what's happening, and maybe where could we learn more? How about that? So, yeah, That sounds great. Um, thanks so much for having us. Um, we just have a chance just to share really briefly. Um, we live on the other side of the world. Um, we are engaged in... Um, it's hard to explain what we do in such a big setting. Uh, <laughs> we're engaged in working with clubs uh, on the other side of the world. And um, in order to, so we've been on, over there for about four years. And uh, we spent our first four years uh, learning language. So the first language we learned sound kind of like, how are all of you? And then you would all say, oh, most times I do. So I'm not going to say that. I'll mess yeah. that up. <laughs> well, most of uh, Now I'm just in trouble. So, now okay, I'm just in okay. trouble. So. so that takes a while to learn. So we spent about a year and a half, two years learning that language, and now we're working on another language. Um, and that language we're um, describing more. There's no books to learn that, but uh, it's really important that we learn their language so we can learn their culture. And so those people say, they say to say hello, they say, Tashi delay, tangbu yede. And so it's completely different than the first language. And uh, so right now, um, we're just back on home assignment. We're really, we're at the beginning of what I think is a really exciting um, work on the other side of the world. And uh, yeah, we want to be able to share more of that with you, I think. We'll give more details on that. Yes, which that's what I want to let you guys know about. So this Wednesday night at 7.30, I believe it is, down at the Hub, uh, Mark and Josie will be there, and they can share a lot more about what's going on and how they're doing cross-cultural work, which is such a cool thing, right? Just to be engaged in things on the other side of the planet, meeting people, doing things, learning languages, learning cultures, seeing an appreciation for all of that. And so it's going to be really, really cool. So if you would like to find out more, this Wednesday night is the night. Come down to the Hub, 7.30. It's going to be great. Uh, you can quiz them more. They're also going to be out here uh, underneath one of the tents if it doesn't blow away from the cyclone bomb that's rolling in. Um, so, uh, and they have a table with nothing on it. So it's the best part of all. It's like, they're just there to tell you whatever you want to know about them. So it's going to be really awesome that way. So I want to go ahead and pray for, actually, I'm going to say the three of these right here because Josie's expecting as well. So... I'm going to pray for these three uh, and for us this morning as well as we get uh, underway with what God has for us. Let's go ahead and do it together. Jesus, I thank you for just these people that are so curious about your world and curious about other people and how they seek to meet other people, engage with other people, and uh, just the fact that you have put this on their hearts. So we thank you for them and we thank you for them as a family. We thank you for our church here today as we've gathered to hear your word. And I pray that we are legitimately challenged by what we're learning in this series, that we don't take it for granted. It's not just like, a, oh, that's nice, and then leave, but rather we would see these things grafted into our life. And so, Jesus, we love you, we need you, we thank you, and we certainly look to you this morning in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, how about you give these three a big hand? They are amazing. 
Perfect. So, the title of our series, Crazy Stuff That Christians Should Do. I should tell you right now, the genesis of the title was very simple. As I was thinking about Jesus and what Jesus says, what Jesus calls us to, what Jesus preaches, I can't help but read it and say, dude's crazy, all right? Jesus says some crazy stuff, right? If you want to gain your life, you must lose it. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be greatest, you have to be the least. If you have somebody that hates you, wants to hurt you, you need to love them and do good to them. And he says, man, if they persecute you, that's where you leap for joy. Tell me that is not a nut job message you ever heard, right? It's crazy what Jesus asks of us. And I think it's important for us as followers of Jesus to not try to domesticate his crazy message, but rather we let it be crazy because it's the crazy message of Jesus that changes the world, right? Jesus does everything upside down and backwards from the way the world does things on purpose. It's his declaration that the world is only made right when we do it his right way, which looks really strange and wrong to other people. So that's what the genesis of the title was. And, and then from that, we've learned some crazy stuff we're supposed to do, like give God a piece of our mind and skip dinner and things like that. And even last week, put God to the test, right? All these things are things that are the crazy stuff we as followers of Jesus should do. But today, I want to challenge you toward another crazy thing. And it's one that as soon as you hear it, it's going to feel a little uncomfortable, What I am challenging you and myself to do is literally to challenge what the Bible says. I want you to challenge what the Bible says. Because in doing that, it might challenge you in in return. See, we we can look at this word in a lot of different ways. We can look at it like it's somehow trying to uh, say, I don't believe it, I want to undermine it, I want to disagree with it, so I'm going to challenge it. Well, that's one form that people certainly use. But my thing is, I think we should challenge it because in challenging, positive things come out. And part of this means that we go and we look at the Bible and we want to challenge ourselves and re-challenge ourselves as to reading it, how we read it, and letting the Bible speak on its own terms when it comes to our life. Not trying to make it say something we want it to say or undermine something that it says, but let it just simply speak on its own terms how it communicates into our life. Now, one of the things I was thinking about this week, and it was a weird place to start as far as a cross-reference to open it up as far as this idea of not wanting to be a critic but be a student, and in being a student, we want to bring challenge. I was reminded of the book of Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say... Now, normally when we read this, we see this as this moment where uh, this serpent is trying to deceive the man and the woman from what God has told them to do, and so he's raising the question, did God really say this to you? And he's trying to throw them off the scent of God's design, right? He wants to steer them away from what God has called them to. And so this question, did God really say, is an underhanded type of motivation. At the same time, when I think about it, I do think that there is value for all of us to ask that question, not in the negative trying to throw us off God's trail, but in the positive to ask ourselves the question, when I look at the Bible, when I think of my Christian faith, when I consider all the stuff of this following of Jesus, did God actually really say? 
In other words, you've looked for yourself. You've taken a hold of this book and said, I'm going to mine it for all that it's worth. I want to understand what it in fact says, not what other people tell me it says, not what I've assumed it says. I want to come every single time to the Bible with fresh eyes, fresh heart, fresh sense of seeking, and I want to see what is it that God wants to say to me, and I want it to be as he truly is communicating it, not as I want it to be or what others have told me, but as it is. And here's why this is important. If I fast forward to the New Testament, Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy's going through a lot of crazy stuff. In fact, he's written one letter to him already. Now it's the second letter. He's just trying to help this young pastor navigate the church. And he says this. He says, A time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and they will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and they will chase after myths. Now, typically, when we hear this passage, or maybe we think about it, our minds drift to kind of one side of the equation. We go, well, the itching ears that want to hear myths, those are the itching ears that care about pluralism and relativism and moral ambiguity and just the sense of kind of permission giving to sin. That's the itching ears. But if you actually look at Timothy's context and what he's dealing with, and you look throughout the New Testament, you see there is as many people that want to use the Bible in an undermining way to push legalism and religion at the cost of gospel and Jesus as there is people wanting to push looseness and moral ambiguity. Just read the New Testament. You see both extremes are in play. Right? It was people that had a high view of the Bible that ultimately crucified Jesus because they had a warped view of the Bible that they held in high esteem. Legalism is just as destructive as looseness. And itching ears will want to hear religious, religi- uh, kind of rigidity and elitism as they will want to hear moral flexibility and hedonism. All of that is in there. So this is why I, I say we have to kind of challenge. The challenge isn't really as much we're challenging the Bible, but understanding that we need to challenge ourselves to really connect with this book and sift it and learn from it and grow from it. Because there's always risk. Something always wants to drive us to the right or to the left all the time. In fact, here's how this seems to happen. So we're going to go ahead and bring up a graphic right here. Here's the Bible, front, center, where it's supposed to be, right? And, and in this, I want you to understand something. I mean, again, I've been a student of the Bible for a long time, and if there's anything about this book that I can guarantee is that it's this rich library of all sorts of things, right? Sometimes you read the Bible and you see a beautiful thing, and then right next to it, you'll see a pretty ugly thing, and then sometimes you'll read something and you go, I know exactly what that's talking about, and another time you're going to read something and go, I have no clue what that's talking about. Some things are life-enriching, some things are life-shattering, some things are gory, some things are gorgeous, some things elevate the glory of God, and some things show the evilness of the human heart. It is a very interesting book because it's organic, it's raw, it's textured, it has all these things. It's written by diverse people in diverse times with diverse worldviews, trying to accomplish different tasks in different ways under certain conditions that aren't the conditions we understand. That's the Bible. Right? All these different styles and genres and settings are all in there. And when God gave it to us, it isn't this perfect like linear thing, like it's in chronological order. Right? It's not like a normal book that way. 
And there is a type of almost messiness to the way we receive it because we're removed thousands of years from the original culture. We have to do homework sometimes to understand what were they going through? What were they thinking? What was the geopolitical problem of the day? And why did this prophet say what he did in relationship to that? That's all true. So we don't want to undermine that. So the Bible in and of itself is, again, this rich, organic, challenging piece of literature wrapped in leather, right? God gives this word to us, but he doesn't make it simple and easy all the time. But here's what happens in that. Instead of going, okay, it's got a lot of complexity to it, uh, we tend to want to drive it in one of two directions. Some take the more fundamentalist route, and they feel this need to kind of like fix it. Now, their, their intention isn't that they're thinking they're fixing it, but, but rather their intention is it is so kind of unwieldy and kind of wild and untamed. We need to strip it all down, break it into its constitutional parts, put it back together in a systematic theology, and then answer the question to everything you could ever ask of this book. The problem with that sometimes is in the desire to answer everything, fix all the problems, polish off all the rough edges, is that it undermines then some of that raw organic nature of the book. Because it wants absolutes for everything. There's no longer mystery. There's no longer the need to rely on God. There's no longer sometimes even the need for the Holy Spirit to really be the teacher in the midst of it. It's just like, nope, we got an answer for everything, and our answer is the answer, and no other answer will suffice. And that's one danger. But it's not the only danger. You also have this theological liberalism, and it feels it needs to take the Bible and nix it. So what it does is it looks at the Bible, says, yes, it's crazy, it's wild, it's organic, it has all these things, I don't know how to make A fit with B, and how do you all do it? They go, well, we have the answer. God didn't give this. This is just a bunch of dudes out in the desert writing stuff. And so they conclude that while it's old and it's interesting, it's not really a God book, it's just a people book. And from that, they just sort of nix it. But see, both of these extremes kind of miss, I think, the way we should approach it. It should stay in the center. And it's not about fundamentalism, and it's not about liberalism, but it's about wisdom. Wisdom just lets it be what it is. It doesn't try to make it behave or fit a particular model in every single context, but, but rather it says, you know what, I'm going to let God's word be profound, be perplexing, and be powerful. I'm going to accept its uniqueness in this world. There's no other book like it. But I'm going to accept that uniqueness also understanding the, the reality of my own humanness. That I will wrestle, I will struggle, I will be confused, I will sometimes be wrong, but I ever want to be pressing in to God to help make me more right as I read his word. And so, less than needing to be intelligent or less than needing to be open-minded, the extremes, we need to be wise. We need to ask God for wisdom, seek wisdom. God, help me to, to see your wisdom in your word. So it's not as simple as I just need certain tools and I can read the book and I'm going to get it. No, there has to be this utter dependence on God as we approach the book all the time, right? That, that, that's the way it has to work. We have to say, Holy Spirit, teach me. God, guide me. Jesus, show me what it is you want me to learn. And part of the challenge of wisdom, I've decided when it comes to this, wisdom stinks because wisdom takes time, right? 
Like you go to Bible college, you take a hermeneutics class, which is just a fancy word for studying the Bible, and in one semester, you're suddenly a master? No. No, wisdom is time and energy and input and learning and growing and adapting your thinking, and that's the spirit of it. It just takes time. It takes experience, which is why I always laugh when somebody says to me, oh, yeah, I read the Bible once. I'm not in on it. It's like me saying, yeah, I tried guitar once. I don't need it. I figured it out. You know, it's like, no, no, it, 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 takes, it takes a life in this book to really understand this book. And so with wisdom as our guide and our goal, I want to talk about how we can approach the book. And I hate to tell you this, but it's, it's eight points today. I'm sorry. All right, so, so if you're taking notes on our app, there are in fact eight points, but we're going to try to move some of these fast, some faster than others. But the first one I want to start with is going to be strange, a little crazy. It's kind of weird, but I think it's important. It's number one in your notes. Accept the reality that some stuff in the Bible is just flat out weird. And weird... It's okay, let the weird be weird. I know that doesn't sound normal for a pastor to say, but, but honestly, when you read through the Bible, like some of you are like, I'm gonna do the read through the Bible in a year. And so you start in Genesis, and then by the time you get to Leviticus, you're like, oh, what have I done? I don't know what to do with this stuff. 247 laws that I don't understand, right? There's some weird stuff in the Bible. In fact, here is a particularly interesting story. If you decided to do the read-through in a year, you would get through Genesis in January and part of early February. The Super Bowl would roll in. You would start Exodus. You'd be like, sweet, Exodus. This is like 10 plagues. It's Egypt. It's Moses versus Pharaoh. Cool stuff's in there. Well, here's the story in there. It says, on the way to Egypt, at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. But Moses' wife, Sephora, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She touched his feet with the foreskin and said, Now you are the bridegroom of blood to me. And she was saying this in reference to the circumcision. And then after that, the Lord left him alone. That's weird, all right? Like, just for the record, I, I, I don't like to sugarcoat stuff. I don't want to have people like, oh man, I can't wait to read the Bible. It's going to be so obvious. I'm like, no, you're going to read some weird stuff. That is not a verse your app of the day for your verse of the day is going to pop up to you ever. You're not going to be like working in the garden. You're like, oh, yes, I feel replenished now. Right? It's not going to happen. And so it's like weird too. When you boil it down, it's like, here comes Moses running into his wife. He's like, zippy, zippy. God wants to kill me. She's like, I got an idea. Grab the boy. I got a knife. And then she slaps it on his feet. And he's like, hey, now I'm not going to die. That's, that's an odd story. And it's okay that it's odd. And here's the thing about odd stories. And there's plenty of other odd stories you'll come across. But here's the thing about odd stories in the Bible. There's odd stories in real life too. There's odd stories in science. Study quantum mechanics for about five minutes. It's weird. There's weird stuff all over the place. It's okay. Here's the thing you don't want to do with the weird parts of the Bible. A, you don't want to stop them from being weird. And B, you don't want to try to take something that's weird and domesticate it so it doesn't sound weird or explain it in a way that we don't even know how to explain it. We don't understand this story. Back then, they did. They're like, oh, the whole foreskin mo Yeah, we got that. But that's... We're, we're cultures removed, and it's okay, right? We just want to let sometimes the weird be weird and be chill with that. We don't have to fix everything and solve everything, right? We just got to keep moving in wisdom. Here's the second one you want to do. Number two, try to come to the Bible each time looking for questions, not just answers, 
You ever think about how Jesus loved to throw down questions more than actually give straight-up answers to stuff? There's something about questions that are profound. And I think this is good for the Bible because sometimes we approach the Bible like, here's God's answers for life roadmap. And there are a lot of answers in here. But I find sometimes that we can look at a passage and we should be asking questions like, well, why that? Or how is that? Or could that mean more than what I'm kind of seeing maybe on the surface? And so let me give you an example of something like this. So back in Genesis where we talked about the serpent and tricks the woman and everything else, uh, in that scene, everything falls apart, right? So the woman and the man, they violate God's standard from that. They're all being introduced to the consequences of their offense, And of those consequences, one is given toward the woman. God said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. This is in the New Living Translation. And oftentimes when we start our read through the Bible in a year, that's the first day or two of our reading plan. And you probably just read right over the top of that. You go, okay, so... The man and the woman, they offended God and they transgressed his rules. And from that now, uh, a few weeks out of her lifetime, a few times, she will suffer by giving birth. That's her consequence. Which I'm like, okay, so you just wiped out the entire human race's trajectory, but that's the consequence? Right? Now, it's interesting. I remember the church I was first at when I first started off in ministry, we had a group of people there that would tell women who were pregnant, you're not allowed to get an epidural because you would be subverting the curse of Eve if you get an epidural when you're going to have a child. To which I'm like, well, the dude has to work by the sweat of his brow and the dirt. Does that mean he can't have a tractor either? Like, I don't understand the logic here. But there was this thing about, no, this is, this is just the only curse that the woman has to endure. And then I'm like, but could there be more in the story? And here's a great way you can find out if there could be more. You just go to a simple uh, website called BibleGateway.com. Just, you can look up the Bible in every conceivable version. It's really, really cool. And if you go there, you can look up the, the Young's literal translation. And it says this, Unto the woman, he said, Multiplying, I multiply thy sorrow and thy, uh, and thy conception. In sorrow dost thou bear children. This changes it a little bit, doesn't it? Because it doesn't put the emphasis on the pain of the action of, of having a child come from your body. Suddenly it's about the sorrow. There is sorrow in having children. There's sorrow in raising children. There is conflict among siblings. And if you just take that essence where God's like, Eve, here's what's happened because Eve, her name means mother of all people. What's going to come because of the decision that you and your husband have made is he will toil the ground, the earth, the planet will work against him and you will have grief and that you will see these offspring struggle against one another. How quickly does she see it? Her first two sons get in a fight and one kills the other, Cain and Abel. And then you see there is Isaac and Ishmael and they have sibling rivalry and you have Jacob and Esau and they have sibling rivalry and you have Joseph and his brothers and their sibling rivalry. What you see in Genesis 3 is a warning. Yes, humanity will set its will against itself. Eve, this is what you're going to have to witness and there is great sorrow in the conflict. That to me takes that text and I suddenly go, wow, I just needed to ask more questions. Is it really just about the action of giving birth or is it about the action of motherhood? And there is grief with that. There's also great joy, it's true. 
but there's grief. And I talk to mothers all the time, and if I was to ask them, what was the toughest part, giving birth or raising them? They're like, give me birth every day, right? Raising, that's hard. And I love this because now this helps you understand why your kids in the backseat of your minivan fight over a chicken nugget. It's right here in Genesis, right? We're just disposed to conflict, and that was the fruit of the actions of the fall. So it's just asking little questions of the text. Well, what does that mean? Or is there another way that this may be saying something? I should look at other versions, see what other versions say about this, and maybe it's going to give me some insights I hadn't seen. Number three is closely related to this. Every time you open the Bible, assume you've overlooked something. Just assume it. See, here's how people normally say this. They go, man, I've read it every time, and every time I read it, I see something different. Right? Just little things pop out that you didn't assume before. That should be the way you approach it. Assume there's something you haven't seen. Assume that something new is going to pop out. In fact, in Psalm 119... He says, I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. Open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instruction. Right? Like, God, let me see something I didn't see before. So I'm going to give you an example of this. Something where I just hadn't seen it before. I'd read this plenty of times. And then I was like, dude, that's something new. So, Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. So soon afterward, Jesus began to tour the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took 12 disciples with him, along with whom some were women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Did you see it? Boom! You didn't see it. I know. Okay, don't worry. I didn't see it for a long time either. So stick with me for a second. First of all, I think it's cool if you ever ask the question, who was like given Jesus spending money? Apparently it's the women. That's just a freebie for showing up. But I think it's kind of cool. It's like, all right, take that chauvinism. It's like women are funding his ministry. But to try to get at what I'm noticing here, let's fast forward a little bit. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 13. It says, at that time, Some Pharisees said to him, get away from here if you want to live, because Herod Antipas, he wants to kill you. Now, Herod Antipas thinks he's a lion, right? He thinks he's a real tough guy, but Jesus says, you go tell that fox, which is kind of an insult contrary to the lion. He thinks he's strong and powerful, but he's a cute little fox. He says, you tell him I'll keep casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow on the third day, and I will accomplish my purposes. Now, did you see it? No, you still didn't see it. Don't worry, it's okay. So, here's the history lesson. 30 plus years previous, Jesus is born. And when Jesus is born, he's born in the territory of King Herod the Great. And King Herod the Great hears about this newborn king from these dudes that come from the east, and so he says, basically, we have to kill the newborn king. He doesn't succeed in killing Jesus. Jesus splits to Egypt, but he kills a bunch of the young children, males, in the process there in Jesus' old homeland, right? So, Terrible mess, everything else. Well, eventually, Herod the Great dies, and he was so powerful, Rome says, we cannot let one single person have that kind of power again. So they divide up his kingdom among his three sons. And so two of the sons get different names, but one son is named after his dad, basically, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas 
now 30 plus years later, is hearing again murmurs about some king of the Jews, some guy with some new kingdom that's going to be subversive to all the other kingdoms of the world, and he's like, we can't let that guy live. So in Luke chapter 13, we learn that he said, hey, I need to kill Jesus. I need to get rid of this guy because he's threatening my kingdom. I can't let him succeed. Now, here's the supreme awesome part of the story that you didn't see, but now you're going to see it. You're going to go, wow, that's interesting. Going back to Luke chapter 8, who's supporting Jesus? Joanna. Who's her husband? Chusa. Who does Chusa work for? Herod. Who pays Chusa? Herod. Where does Joanna get her money? From her husband. Who gets it from Herod? Who's funding Jesus' ministry? Herod. Is that not rad or what? God is like, that's hilarious. Right? But that's that little thing. Just that, like, you've got to wonder, like, why did Luke go out of his way to say, and there was this one woman whose husband's name was this who worked for this dude? Paper was expensive. It wasn't like, they're like I'm just going to write extra footnotes for fun. No, there's a reason these little subtle nuances are in there. And if you pay attention, you go, maybe there's something I've never seen before. Then you'll see something you've never seen before. And you'll be like, that's, that's cool. That's insightful. That's interesting. And there are hundreds, hundreds of little nuggets like that just waiting to be discovered as we read. Now, here's what's also true. Again, in the spirit of honesty, just as much as there's little treasures, there's also some troubles. There's some tough things. And so that's number four. When you find odd, troubling, confusing, or intriguing things, question it. I don't mean as a critic again. I just mean say like, what might that mean? Or why is it in there? Or why did the writer think that was important? Or why was that important to the original audience? Because here's the thing about reading the Bible. We're reading other people's mail. And sometimes you have to understand the other person who was receiving the mail originally to understand what it's getting at. So it's okay to sort of search some stuff out to try to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. In fact, there's this great passage in Acts chapter 17. It says, The people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. And they searched the scriptures day after day to see if what Paul and Silas were teaching was true. Now, I love this. It says, They were open-minded, so they looked really hard. Open-minded wasn't like, hey, we'll take everything. No, they're open-minded. This is, we're going to double-check. And that word searched, I want to highlight it because it means to evaluate. But with this, to vigorously judge. One way it's put is to pry apart and rebuild. It's why when you hear, like in law enforcement, they were breaking down a case, what they're doing is this. They're, they're searching. They're breaking it down. Some even say it's to examine by torture. Right? That's the idea of search. Right? To say, you know, I want to really make sure. I'm going to do an exhaustive sweep of this as best as I can to see what God is getting out when I run across something that I don't know what to do with it. Right? Because this book is not meant to be under glass and revered and unsought and untouched and unanalyzed. No, God's like, I want you to work it, man. I want you to pick it up and pry it apart and dig into it and find out what's there, right? Find its depths and find its secrets. Ask, ask the questions. Because good things can come to those who ask the questions. Now, part of this questioning process is number five. 
If you really want to know what the heck this interesting book is talking about, read other stuff too. Read other stuff too. Because here's the thing, much of what I've had the joy of learning over the course of my Christian life wasn't because I just locked myself in a room with the Bible. Right? There was other authors, other teachers, other insights, other people who have specialties that I don't have and insights that I wouldn't think about and they come to things in an angle different than I would perceive of them. But then from that I have different thinking or grown thinking or I challenge my own thinking. Like all of that is true. And there's nothing wrong with this. Like I think sometimes I hear people say, I just need nothing but the Bible. And I'm like, well, that's not what God said. God says you need teachers. I need teachers. We all need somebody to give us some input on this book. Ephesians chapter 4. It says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Again, all of these players are there to help grow our perspectives, to grow our understanding, to help us uh, kind of lean into the challenge of learning more. And it's not just scholars and religious mucky mucks. No, it's just everyday people can do this too. What's it saying? Colossians 3 says, let the message of Christ in all its richness fill your lives, teach and counsel one another with all the wisdom he gives. When you get together in a regroup and you're talking about stuff, that's a way that God can teach you about his word. When you read a book, you read a blog, you listen to a podcast, you listen to music, you see art, there's all sorts of ways that God wants to teach his word to us in unique ways. And so when you bump into stuff that's kind of crazy or kind of hard or whatever, go lean into these tools because they're good. You have to have discretion in this for sure. But at the same time, boy, there's some great stuff in that kaleidoscopic approach where you're like, I want to read the word and I read, want to read others about the word and that gives me insight to the word. Those are valuable tools, right? Number six, this is the opposite of this problem. When you find clear and obvious things, do those things, right? Sometimes we can get so stuck on the, well, what do I do with this and what do I do with that that we overlook the fact that the scariest, freakiest, challenging stuff of the Bible is the stuff that's obvious, in fact, Mark Twain said, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bothers me, it's the parts that I do understand. And he's right. James said in chapter 4, verse 17, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. There are some weird things in the Bible that I go, I don't know what to do with that. Deuteronomy chapter 5, if a woman is assumed to have committed adultery, she has to drink muddy water to prove her innocence. I'm like, I don't know why. That's weird. But you know what really confronts me? Sermon on the Mount. Right? That's the stuff that's straightforward, to the point, and frankly, my American entitled personality doesn't like it very much. I don't want to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, I don't want to forgive my enemies, I don't want to do, like, but that's the stuff that really is in our face obvious. That's the stuff that challenges us. Right? Because God, he didn't give us the Bible so we can simply have Sunday school or small groups that meet and talk about it. No, he gave it to us so that we could be made more right with him and more right with our mission. That's what it's about. And so from this, it leads to number seven. What we need to do when we approach the Bible is to challenge the word to challenge you. Challenge the word to challenge you. So, uh, fun little fact, uh, we would call this the word of God. And then if we looked at a picture of Jesus, we'd say, well, that's Jesus. But the Jesus of the Bible is actually the Word of God, 
right? So when you read John chapter one or Hebrews chapter one, Jesus is the fullest expression of the word of God. And then this word of God is giving a fuller understanding of that full expression of the word of God. And so when I talk about, hey, we need to question the word of God, ask the word of God to challenge us. What we're saying is Jesus through your word, Jesus the word through the Bible that is the word, I want you to challenge my life. But part of that is we bring a challenge to be challenged. An example of this I find from our friend Job, right? We know Job's story, chapter one, chapter two, life is good, life is bad, loses everything. And toward the end of chapter two, his wife's like, you know what, you need to just curse God and die, which seems like a really bad plan. Maybe she didn't like her husband much, I don't know. But at the end of Job chapter two, it says he said nothing wrong. And we go, that's right. Job lost everything and he said nothing wrong till chapter 10. Keep reading the book, all right? So in chapter 10, he says, I am disgusted with my life uh, and let my complaint be free. I just want to complain freely about things. My bitter soul must complain. I will say to God, don't simply condemn me. Tell me the charge that you're bringing against me. What do you gain by oppressing me? So Job is no longer happy-go-lucky Job. He's not in the first kind of phase of, of like grief. He's now in second phase. He's in anger now. Right? So he's mad at God. And from chapter 10 to chapter 37, he keeps bringing up, why this? Why that? I don't get it. This isn't fair. My friends say it's fair. It's not fair. I didn't do anything wrong. They said I did. God, you're treating me like I did. He's just, he's just mad. So he challenges the word. But then God responds in chapter 37. The Lord answered Job from the world when he says, who is this that questions my wisdom? with such ignorant words. Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. That's when you're in trouble, right? But I, what I love about this is, again, where's God grounded? Who challenges my wisdom? Remember how we started this off? We need to approach it with wisdom. Job is approaching the problem with intellect. This doesn't make any intellectual sense. And God's like, right, because you're using your intellect right now. You need to use wisdom. It's deeper, it's pure, it's more thoughtful. And so Job challenges the word who is God, and the word challenges Job back. And that leads to the final stage of grief, really, for Job. He just accelerates it to acceptance. Job 42 says, And then Job replied to the Lord, You asked, Who is that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? He says, It is I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. So you have to sometimes go through a process where you challenge it, and then it spins and challenges you, and it humbles you to a healthy place. See, that's the way we should approach it. It's crazy, but it's crazy stuff that frees us. And that leads finally to number eight here. Always see the Bible as an optic, not an object. The Bible says, look through me, not look at me. Here's what I mean by this. Um, God is not the Bible, but the Bible is God's gift to us. And I've known throughout my life, and I've run with certain groups, that you would almost think that they replace God with the Bible, right? That I don't need to consult God, I've got the book. And so the book becomes a microscope. I really believe that God wants us to have this book become a telescope, where we're looking at the pages, we're seeing the stories, we're watching the characters, we're seeing the words, and then we're wanting to see the God behind all of it, who comes into our lives, who speaks in the still small voice, who does life 
with us. And we're not just doing life in his name, but rather we're doing life with him. See, that's how he wants to work in wisdom from the good book to help us be wise like our good God. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, so much stuff in such a kind of finite amount of time. And I pray that we don't get lost in the weeds of our eight points, but rather we'd see the spirit of this, which is we are entering into a dynamic relationship with you where you leverage your word in our lives so that we might know you more, live like you more, sound, act, react like you more. And we know that that's the end goal. The end goal is that we will see you face to face and we will be seen like you. And so in this life, may we see your word as one of the great tools you use, one of the crazy tools to make us more like you, Jesus, to follow after a Savior that offered crazy grace and a crazy way of life. I pray that we would embrace that and we embrace your call for us. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you in your name. Amen.